0: This is the All In Gospel podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe, or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. And we'll be starting in Exodus 33 tonight. Uh, for context, to catch you up... Um, exodus is and we have been going through this journey of the children of israel being pulled out of egypt and becoming a people of god and the journey has started with israel starting as slaves god redeems and saves them there's miracles there's pop snapple and prop pop snap crackle and pop <laughs> as things happen they make a covenant god gives them the law Then Moses goes away to talk to God and they break the law and they make the golden calf, which was a very depressing chapter because they messed up. And we got to see that when God's people get the chance to have their own way, they get their freedom, they sin. So now we get to see this redemptive process happen with the mediator before the whole tabernacle thing gets built. And I think it's weird because we got the image of the tabernacle, this vision of heaven in front of us but it's not there yet. They still have a journey. There's still more of the Exodus that has to happen for them to get there. So, um, Shadow. I like how Katie just watches Shadow do his thing. <laughs> no. She's not going to tell There like, you go. That's what I you got to gotta do. So we pick up in Exodus 33. They've just done the whole golden calf affair. um, And Moses says, I'm going to go talk to God and see if he won't kill all of you. Um, And they, he comes back, Moses and God have a conversation of some sort, which isn't necessarily recorded. And Moses comes back and says, the Lord said, either you're with me or you're against me. You make a choice. So after that choice happens, then we get to here. So we start in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And I won't make jokes about other kinds of people. So God's basically preparing them to get up and move. Which has been, we've been a lot of chapters now with the tabernacle and with these instructions at Mount Sinai, and He's basically saying it's time to get up and move. And He's going to send an angel. The Hebrew word there is Malach, which means a messenger. And it's clearly not a Christophany. It's not that same kind of angel. So it's the kind of angel that's basically God saying, I won't go with you, but I'm going to send an angel with you. That seems to be part of the consequence here. So verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. <laughs> if we remember from before, stiff necked was a reference to animals that wouldn't turn when they're being led by the rains. They'd lock their legs or lock their neck and they wouldn't turn. The fact that God won't go up into their midst is the separation that's going to happen between God and the nation of Israel. This is not a good thing. Um, still, he's going to show them. He's going to prepare the way for Him. He's going to give it to them. They just don't get to abide with him. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Because apparently when they're happy, they put on ornaments and when they're not happy, they don't put on ornaments. So it was a sign that they were not happy that they didn't put on their their ornaments. But the plan was God was going to go with them. And remember, to get to Mount Sinai, they had this cloud that they could see that represented God, and they could see the presence of God with them. So an angel leading the way isn't the same thing, and it's not the same thing. So without God, somehow everything else becomes lesser. And in this sense, it's called bad news. Verse 5, For the Lord said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. That's the second time we see that. Um, Third, if you count the last chapter. You're a stiff-necked people. I would come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So it seems like God's basically trying to make a decision as to how to handle the children of Israel that made this golden calf that broke the first of the commandments. Um, and we see it happen there again. And And they resist that that direction from God. God's waiting to see what they're going to do and what, they're, what they demonstrate. The word ornaments, now that that's been used twice, in the Hebrew, that's kind of a trappings or finery or all the like jewelry and adornments. It's not your normal gear that you they're not walking around naked, right? So the trappings or the ornaments would be things that they would put on like an outfit that would be their best, fanciest of gears. The ornaments are the things that they give off here. The things they they slough off are the things that will get donated to the building and tabernacle. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. This is not the tabernacle, but it's the start of that. It's a place to meet. And notice that at this point, it's not in the middle of their camp, it's way outside of camp. And that's part of the consequences of sin, is that God's not going to dwell with you. Came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So God's going to get to see, because for them to go and be in the presence of God now, they have to make a trip. They have to; It takes work to go be in the presence of God. Or if he was right in the middle of the camp, that wouldn't be the case. So it's not... It takes some planning to go and do it, because you got to find part of your day to go be with God. Moses is taking initiative. It's a spontaneous response, and it saves him, I thought, it saves him another trip up the mountain, because he's in his 80s. So to have to go back up the mountain to talk to God every time, instead of doing that, he's going to build this tent, because Moses knows darn well that God doesn't have to be on a mountaintop. You can meet him wherever he puts this tent together. Um, so it saves him that trip. And they get to see who's going to seek the Lord. Who sought the Lord is the phrase they use. The location makes this uh, an ideal place to see who really wants to spend time with God and who wants to take some of their daytime to do that. So God's not abandoning them, but he's not dwelling with them. And that's the consequence of sin. It's the same thing in our life today. If you're still going back to your sin over and over and over again, you're going to find it harder and harder to connect with God and find those moments with God and dwell with God. So it was, verse eight, whenever Moses went out into the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he'd gone into the tabernacle. This is kind of an interesting sign of reverence. There seems to be repentance on the part of the stiff-necked people. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshiped, and each man in his tent door. I think it's kind of interesting that God doesn't leave it up to faith at this point with these young, brand new Christians. There's this visual evidence. It's not hard to see God when you're first starting your journey with God. It'll get harder for them as they go, but when you first get saved, and I, I know a lot of people are like that. When you first see people get saved, they see God in everything. Like, did you see God help me get my find my toothpaste this morning? And God did this, and there's this enthusiasm to it. And they can see God's hand is in everything, which is true. But I think as you get more mature in your faith, it stops being so wonderful. And maybe that's something that to rise every morning and stand when you see God's presence and, and to acknowledge it. It's kind of a neat kind of moment. I like those verses because I just got a different picture of who the children of Israel really were. That, or they're terrified of Moses because he just went and killed 3,000 people that led the golden calf thing. So something's going on here, but to go out and to be by there and to be outside that tent and to, to enjoy the presence of God is good. So when he makes time to do it, it's important to note too, that Moses takes time out of his day to go meet with God, which is hard in our busy lives to do, but to be more like Moses, that's part of how he was managing a country, a small country, and he's able to find time to meet with God. So the presence or the location of the cloud seems to be outside the tabernacle door, the tent door, which basically closes Moses inside. I thought that was an interesting positioning. God's not inside the tent waiting for Moses. When Moses goes inside the tent, he shows up outside the tent. So I thought that was, God puts himself between Moses and the people. Lord talked with Moses So we already have seen Moses talk with God for 40 days on Mount Sinai. Now it seems like the Lord's talking with God. Moses is talking with the Lord day after day. So they're building a relationship, most of which isn't recorded in the Bible. So we don't have like a transcript of what was said in that tent. So lots of talking and we only see little parts of it. All the people rose and worshiped, seeing God's presence, Moses... Uh, in Moses's life causes other people to worship too. So they see the commitment Moses has, and then they reflect that and they model that too. And I think that's kind of, with all of us, when we see veteran believers, we watch how they live and we tune into it. And I remember when I was a kid, and of course I'd moved up to the Twin Cities to play football. And I remember finding these, this family called the Schumachers. She was the lunch lady and she always gave me extra portions. All of those bigger guys she just had a heart for us. She knew we were hungry. So she would always give us extra food and we liked that. And I don't know how, it. I, I think her daughter was in my speech class and I asked her out on a date. And then the parents said, you can't take her daughter out on a date until you come over and have dinner at our house and, and we get to meet you. So I go for dinner at this girl's house and there's the lunch lady. And I was so excited. I was like, it's Madonna, the lunch lady. And she was, she gave me extra portions at her house too. Just, you know, it was a connection thing. Um, and I got to see what this Christian family looked like and how they lived. And it was kind of amazing to me because it was really different than my family and how we lived. But boy, did I tune in because I saw the results of these two awesome Christian people and then their daughters and what they're like. The daughter got upset because I got along and talked with the mom all night. So she got so frustrated. She went up to her bedroom and then Radana and Tom and her little sister and I stayed up and played Risk until like 11 p.m. But she, we never actually went out on a date. She was so furious that her parents got along better with the guy she brought home. But And of course, that didn't help her case at all. I'm way off track. Back on, on script. Verse 11. My point with that story is, it's awesome when you know people where you can feel the presence of God in their life, or you can see it like the people of Israel could with Moses. And when you see that, you emulate it as much as you can. Verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Remember, Joshua had nothing to do with the golden calf thing. He's the guy that gets to continue to be in the presence of God because he wasn't involved in all that. Face to face here is the word panim. I'm gonna come back to it again, but when it says the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, it was panim, which means to be in person, to be present with. That's an interesting phrase for a cloud of smoke because the smoke doesn't have a face or Moses could actually see a face in the smoke or actually meet and talk with someone. If that's the case, then this is a Christophany. So the personified version of God is Christ. Um, so he's making a point of the nature of the conversation. I think the sentence in, a, in verse 11 goes out of its way. Uh, to say that this was face to face. And there's even the prepositional phrases a man speaks to his friend. Indirectly, Moses then is probably meeting with Jesus at this point. Moses is going to ask to see God's face in the next few verses, which is an odd thing because here it says face to face. So even talking directly to God, Moses still feels like he can't take in the identity of God, right? Because he continues to ask for more of God's glory in his presence later um even though he's talking to him um but there's this face to face thing where you see does feel like he is talking to a part or a person of god. John 14:9 says he Jesus says to his disciples, "He who has seen me has seen the Father." And Jesus would talk to his disciples face to face and then they want to ask more about the Father and it's a really similar situation if you think about it. They're talking to Jesus, but they know there's more to god than this personified version of god. Joshua, son of Nun, is a rising star. This is, I think, the third time he's been mentioned, and he just gets mentioned offhand, but clearly he's kind of moving up in the ranks. Every time he gets mentioned, he's doing something a little more, with a little more responsibility. So this is a young man who just serves and helps, and he continues to rise through the ranks, and I think for young people, that's probably encouraging. Um... And at this point, his faithfulness has been what keeps him in this position where he's one of two people that hang out in this tent. Um, So be as close as you can for that clear calling. And I think that's something with Joshua. You don't see a lot of ambition with Joshua. Yet he will lead this nation at some point. You really just see somebody who's willing to change out the oil and do these kind of jobs and wait upon the Lord and don't part from that. Verse 11, then Moses said to the Lord... See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I might find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Okay, Moses' prayers are amazing, aren't they? I read those prayers and I think I could pray that. That's not a complex prayer at all. It's just as one talks to their friend. And the grace with which he does it is just wonderful. Moses in this prayer, if you break it down, tells God what God already said. So he's preaching or praying God's word back to him. And then he makes his request, right? And he's basically asking it for two things. One, be shown the way. And the way could either be the way in general or the way actually to the promised land. Interesting that a prince of Egypt and someone who'd lived for 40 years out in this area, I'm thinking Moses actually knows the physical direction to get to the promised land, right? Because he lived out here. So when he says, show me your way, that's a different kind of, it's not necessarily a physical way. It's a way to get there. That's the way God does it. And then he wants to find God's grace. So God, he appeals to God. Um, Moses wants to ask in sincerity for what most believers ask for all the time, which is, Lord, I want to get to know you. Show me your way. Um, God says, I know you by name in verse 12. Moses asked for what these other believers should do in verse 13, which is to be shown the way. That's pretty bold to ask that of God. And God welcomes that boldness in prayer. There's no reproof for this kind of... You know, some people would say and some of the commentary said that Moses is being really brash or like irreverent in the face of God here. And I didn't, I don't read that at all. You might, and we can talk about it when we're done, but I don't read irreverence and I don't see that God reprimands him at all. In fact, I see God honoring that kind of prayer. What I take away from that is give God your honesty before you give him fancy and flowery prayers. Just talk to God and give him, tell him what you want and be honest with him. And I think in, at least in our generation, the church is pretty good at that. Um, we have uh, we have shed a lot of the uh, ornamentation around prayer and whatnot. And the purpose of all this is to know him. So verse 14, and he said, this is God talking back to Moses. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's not what Moses asked for. Did you notice that? He had, Moses asked for his grace and God answers and said, I will give you my rest as though they're the same thing. And I thought that was interesting. From God's perspective, his grace is our rest. And then he said to him, well, that's interesting. Who's the he there? This is Moses then talking to God, right? If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. This is an interesting interchange between God and Moses, right? So God says, I'm gonna send my angel with you. And Moses is basically complaining, I don't want that. We want you with us, and if you're not with us, then your glory doesn't get shown. This angel's glory gets shown. You see the prayer he's asking for there? That's It's not good enough to just have God lead the way with a messenger or angel. Moses wants God himself to be in it. This sent me spinning this week. What if everything we plan maybe it's even inspired, like it's a good thing with a small g, but it's not a God thing. And if God's not in it, look at how Moses says, we don't even want to move if you're not in it. Like it's not worth it. And, And anyways, I just thought about that a lot because we all have our plans, our agendas, our things we're working on in life. But if God's not in it, Moses would rather just sit and wait until God was ready to be with him. To know God is to feel his presence and be at rest. We saw that in verse 14. Provision and peace is really the God's gift to us. God promises to go with Moses singular. I will go with you. (laughs) And notice how Moses in verse 15 changes it from the singular to the plural. So in verse 14, God says, I'll go with you, Moses. We'll hang out in this tent. And then Moses goes, if your present doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. This is the heart of a leader. It's not about Moses anymore. He's really taking care of his people. Jesus mirrors the same kind of promise in Matthew 11:28, says, "Come unto me, all ye that are he- that labour and are of heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Moses dedicates that, dedicates that God will be separate, set apart, and holy, and not swayed by anything else. Um, And he wants his face to be separate from the face of the earth. Oh, I see what I was doing there. (laughs) My presence, if you take that word in verse 14 and 15, the word presence there is actually panim, the same word we saw before, which was the face. And he's basically saying, another way to translate that is my face will go with you. Right? Because it said he met face to face and we saw the word panim. The other place we see that word panim is at the end of verse 16, where it says the face of the earth is the same word again. So literally speaking in this passage, Moses is contrasting I'm either in God's face, or I'm in the face of the world. So we'll have to the contrast is super clear in the Hebrew, because it uses the same word. So if you were a Hebrew reader reading that passage, you'd see what was going on there. The face of God or the face of the world are the two choices. And the face of the world, earth, in the Hebrew, that's Adama, literally Adam's dirt, right? So you either have your face where God wants you to be, or you have your face in Adam's leftovers, right? And that's the decision that we have to make. Jehovah responds. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken. Frankly, I like how that reads. I will do this thing which you have spoken. It sounds like the dog and up, right? The one with the voice modulate anyways. I will do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight, and I know your name. That's a really interesting thing when God says something like that to somebody. What privilege, what honor do we have when God knows our name? Or even better when God gives us a name. God changes will here and that's a problem for people that think that God never changes because here we have an instance where God changes. A person prays and God changes and makes a different decision. Does that mean God is somehow less than or somehow less powerful God because he doesn't because he changes his mind? And one framing for this that kind of helps I think is that throughout the Bible we never see God change a promise. When God makes a promise, it's resolute and he will literally move heavens and earth to make that promise happen. But when it comes to his, ju- his judgment, he delays judgment or offers mercy on a regular basis throughout the Bible. And when God's people pray for mercy, God gives mercy. And that's usually when you see God changing its mind. It's because He's relenting on His judgment or His anger. He's putting it off a little longer. A good example of that is, of course, uh, Jonah, when he basically you know goes into Nineveh and and God, stays His wrath and His anger. And remember, Jonah gets upset because he knew God's character. And he's like, I knew you were going to forgive these people. And Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to get forgiven. He was angry that God gave him forgiveness. But Jonah knew God's character so well that he knew that God relents on his judgment all the time. It's what God does, right? And in the face of a golden cow, you'd think judgment is coming. And in this case, he relents and he backs off. Moses in verse 18, then comes back again, which I think is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. And he said, please, show me your glory. What a cool hunger that Moses has for God. At this point, Moses has matured beyond me. Like sometimes you relate to biblical characters, but now you got this thing where God's in the presence of God already. And he has the audacity to ask for his glory too. Knowing that God's power is amazing and infinite, right? But he hungers for more of God. And in that sense, I want to be more like Moses. So seeing him face to face, There's this cloud outside of his tent. He's got two manifestations possibly that we've seen already. And he still asks, show me your glory. He wants to walk then by, not by faith, but by sight. He wants to see it. Moses knows that God is bigger than just the manifestation he can see right there. This is huge. It's like Peter asking to walk on water, right? Peter knew there was more to this. He knew there was some more power to God. And I think God honors those bold prayers because God is that powerful. It's truth. And when we ask for things that are true, God actually respects that. So another way to say that glory, the word glory in the Hebrew is kavod, which means another translation or another way to say that it's, it's, it means the weight of something, the impact of something. It's interesting prayer when Moses says, please show me your weight. And he's not calling God chunky. He's just saying, Lord, I want to see your impact. I want to see you move and do things. I want to see your glory make these people a shining light on the earth. I want people to talk about you, not about the children of Israel. Show me your weight. Show me your impact. When we abide with God, that's the thing that gets addictive. So addictive, like, and this is the fun part about being a believer. You just meet people throughout your life. And the people we know that are like former addicts, literally stop doing drugs and go to Bible studies every night to get off the drugs which seems like it doesn't make sense. But then they testified that's what got them off drugs, is that they wanted to see the impact of God in their life. And that was so exciting that it actually started to replace some of those other things. So you meet these people that are like, I met the Lord Jesus and I stopped drinking and doing narcotics in the same day and I've never gone back and it's been 20 years. And how do you deny that kind of witness? You're like, okay, if that's the case, then that's amazing, it defies all biology. And they're like, oh yeah, it was kind of rough for a couple months, but yeah, I just study the word and I like to see what God's doing. And that's so exciting. And that's what God's asking for, that powerful fulfillment that fills the gap of excitement and enthusiasm or or joy that we have in life, um, that we see what God's doing. And that's the kind of prayer that I think we see in this chapter. We should be praying for that. And then he said, verse 19, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Oh, this is, first of all, these last few verses are theologically like, you got to just sit on these a little bit. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion, <laughs> which is God saying, I'm going to do as I please. My goodness is an affirmative answer, but it's not again, what Moses asked for. It's like they're playing word games with each other. Here's what I will give you. I'll give you my goodness when God asked for his glory, right? See the shift? So God's either equating goodness with glory or he's giving Moses what he deems to give him, which is what he's trying to say in the second half of the sentence. God doesn't show him his justice. He doesn't show him his power. He doesn't show him his wrath. He shows him his goodness. And that's how God wants to be seen because God is good. So he gives Moses what he needs, not what he asks for uh, we know in other places in the Bible that the fullness of God's glory causes people to like crumble, right? In fact, most people can't stand when they see the power of God. They fall to their knees instantly. Um, and we see that happen throughout that, that, that sort of power is something that maybe we don't necessarily want in our current state. Jeremiah thirty-one fourteen speaks similarly for God about his goodness and this is what God should want. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. That's what fills us up. We know God is good. We see what he does in our life and it's, it's amazing. I just talked to uh, someone from my extended family today and they're still like trying to figure out life and how to get through this next stage of their life. So they call me up. I don't know why they ask us. It's not like we figured this stuff out, but they're trying to sort this out and seek wisdom. Like, okay, what do we do with this? And how do we get towards retirement? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm never going to retire. Um, but we, you know, you share and you, you, you do it with them, but you think, you know, what you're seeking is financial security and what you should be seeking is God's goodness. That's what satisfies believers. Okay. Paul prays three times to God that, that There's a thorn. Remember, Paul prays about a thorn in his side. And there's tons of theories on that, which I won't get into. But he basically claims Satan attacks him with that thorn. That's the thing that Satan will tweak that gives him, detracts him from God. And God answers him, not with power, wrath, or justice or grace, but he answers, I'm going to give you my grace and goodness. That's what I'm going to give you. You're going to keep your thorn, Paul, but you're going to get my goodness. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's goodness is his glory in our life. That's how we see it. Verse 20, but he said, this is God still talking, but he said, you can't see my face for no one shall see me and live, right? I'm too much for you, Moses. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is amazing. First of all, we don't get to see God, literally speaking, in his spirit. We can't handle it. God offers Moses a place next to him, but he speaks in the present tense, here is a place next to me. You see that? And you shall stand on the rock. It's like he's telling them where to stand. And they're not necessarily on a rock right now. So the location becomes interesting. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. There's no cleft nearby them that we're aware of. So he's talking about this kind of space where he's going to put them, which is a wonderful image of God's protection and his refuge. And then in verse 19, it's then he said, but also it says, but he said, And then there's a passage there that says, and the Lord. Do you see how the Lord speaks? Usually from what we've seen in Genesis and Exodus, when someone speaks, it gives a simple introduction. But in this one, there's actually three introductions to his talking. Verse 20, it says, but he said. Verse 21, it says, and the Lord said. And then in verse 19, it says, then he said. So we actually have the Lord saying things, but he gets three introductions that's interesting. So let's break down each one. In the first one in verse 19, it says I'll pass before you, which is probably that cloud or that spiritual manifestation of God. In verse 20, it says you cannot see my face, which is a denial, which could be the actual power of God, the Father, you don't get to see that part of God. And then in verse 21, it says here's a place you can stand next to me, which is like, yeah, we can be here face to face. So, if there's three parts to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he answers Moses' question in all three senses and gives him an answer for each manifestation of God. Right? I'll pass before you as a spirit. You can't see my face as the Father. And here's a place you can stand right next to me as a son. And those of you that are Bible scholars know that Moses did stand next to Jesus, which is something that got the disciples super excited because they were reading Exodus and then they see Moses standing next to Jesus. So you shall take a place on the rock. Before I get to that passage, though, in 1 Kings 19, 8 through 18, if you write that reference down, this is Bible study for later. Some people believe that this is the spot where Elijah met with God too, on the same spot by Mount Sinai. And Elijah is the only other person that kind of gets to see the manifestations of God. Remember that's the passage where God passes as the wind and Elijah says, God's not in the wind. There's an earthquake, there's fire. God's not in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire, but God showed up as a still small voice right next to Elijah. Remember that? Same spot. Okay. That's one theory of this. So assuming as God is outside of time and through the entire New Testament, there are two people that got to see God's glory in any manifestation or form. That's Moses and Elijah. Now I want to go to the New Testament and read Mark 9, because this passage suddenly goes, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So Mark 9, verse 2. Most of you are just clicking there now. Okay, I'll just read it, because I don't hear pages flipping. Unless you want me to wait for you. Go forward in your Bibles. you've heard me make that joke for year year. So Mark chapter nine, and in verse two, I'll pick up there. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. First of all, we don't know where the high mountain was. It's just, they could have taken a long journey. Six days, you can get anywhere in Israel in six days by foot, right? So you could even be at the foot of Mount Sinai if you didn't take the uh, Children of God route to the Holy Land, if you just kind of went straight. Theoretically, they could have made quite a journey to get to a place like this. It could theoretically be the same spot. Um, And this is where Jesus transfigured before them. He shows his glory, right? his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such that no launderer on earth can whiten them. First of all, I like how Mark writes because he adds details like that. Nobody could wash clothes this clean. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus face to face, Panim, right there. And they can see this happening. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So um, Peter says something stupid, which is not unlike Peter. He's He's not a gifted orator, right? He's a fisherman, right? But he sees Elijah and Moses both talking to God. One wonders, when God is talking to Moses face to face, if we're outside of time here and there's some sort of weird time travel thing, even if there's not weird time travel, it's still a miracle. They can see Moses and Elijah talking with God. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. Do we see a cloud in Exodus? Yes, there's a cloud right outside the tent. That's the other thing. There's already a tent that's been made for Moses. So Peter's like, Peter. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. Peter, whose name, by the way, is Rock, (laughs) wanted to make a tabernacle of meeting. And Moses is in a tabernacle of meeting. And God says, you're going to stand next to me on the rock. Isn't this cool? The connections are huge, right? So it's almost like they were seeing Moses with Jesus in Exodus 33, like they got to look back at that. Or Moses is hanging out in the tent, and they got to go forward and and meet with Peter. Peter's terrified he should be. This is an amazing moment, because he can see Moses talking with Jesus, right? And remember what he said to Moses, like, you don't get to see my face. But Peter does. Peter gets an honor that Moses didn't even have. And Peter's just a fisherman who asks really dumb questions, right? And what a grace, what a goodness that God allows and shows. So a cloud came and overshadowed them is happening at the same time when God promises Moses that my glory is going to pass by you. You're going to be here in this moment. You're going to see it, Moses. Moses isn't allowed to see the face of Jesus, God's face, because the incarnation hasn't been timed yet, and to Moses there's a veil. Just like in the tabernacle, there's a veil. You don't get to see everything, Moses. You shall see my back. (laughs) Back is the weird word in the Hebrew. It's not an anatomical part of the body. God's not saying you can check out my backside. That's not what's going on here. Back means cure after, behind or after effect. It's like the trailers to a movie. Moses, you get to see the trailers, but you don't—or not the trailer. That's the intro. The credits. You get to see the credits, Moses, but you don't get to see the movie yet. That's not for you. You're going to see the after effect of my work, not the before effect. That's an interesting kind of thing. So one imagines that Jesus is facing Peter when he talks. If he's even a couple steps in front of Moses and Elijah, literally Moses is looking at the backside of Jesus, the after effects of the work of God. Shadow. We don't get to see the full glory of... God either. The full glory of God blinds Paul on the road. It undoes Isaiah. It drops John to the ground when he sees it in in Revelation, right? Like a dead man. So the glory of God becomes this overwhelming thing. We are not God. We don't get to see the full story. We often get to see the after effects. Billy Graham used to say, I don't ever get to see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind right? I don't get to see sound, but I can see the I can hear the effects of sound on my ear. And that's one of the things with God. We don't get to see God with our eyeballs, but we get to see the effects of God, the impact of God. It's what God, it's what Moses initially asked for. I want to see your impact. And God says you're going to get to see my after effects. So he grants him that request. In part, Moses has already been seeing God's glory. He can see God's glory in creation. He's seen the people of Israel get saved. He can see the stars at night with no light pollution, right? But Jesus, God's true glory on earth and the history of the world, it's still yet to come. And Moses doesn't get that. When it does come, we get to see it really clear. And John 1.14, this is why these gospels were things that people got killed over initially. You can imagine what this sounds like to a Jewish reader when they read in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us to tabernacle among us. That's the promise of Exodus, right? And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When John writes that, he's making the claims that everything Moses asked for is getting fulfilled. We can see the effects of the glory, the trail of God's hand after it's done. So where God gets to be face to face with Moses, as Jesus will be, Moses is ultimately given this request Or granted this request fully at the transfiguration. So God fulfills his promises. In the same way in our lives, we often don't get to see everything God's doing. In fact, we get to sometimes endure long periods of waiting where God's timing is more important, just like Moses got to sit around for 40 years, right? Yet we can still see God's glory. We too can go out and see the stars if we get outside the city a little bit. We too can see God's creation. We can see what God does in each other's lives. We can see when God heals a heart of someone we know and how beautiful and wonderful that is. We can see when God saves someone who deserves death because they're doing really dumb things in their life. And we can see that mercy coming in. And we can see God's mercy in our own life. And that endurance is what helps us to go too. Yet we are still in Exodus. There are a lot of trials and tribulations ahead of the children of Israel still yet to come. So this growth, this image of a Christian walk, getting free and getting saved and getting the law and starting to live under the law. At this step, we see and learning how to pray and learning how to ask God for things. And the right things to ask God for are to see his glory and to have him abide and walk with us. And those are the things that Moses starts praying for. In the midst of a sinful children of Israel, those people see Moses making these prayers. They see the cloud. They see what it looks like when a godly man does these things. And then they want to serve him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that your promises never fail, Uh, that Lord, you keep your promises throughout time, even to Moses, Lord, that he would get to see uh, your effects, your back. Uh, And Lord, we just thank you for the blessing of Moses and what a leader he had become at this point, that we've gotten to see him grow up in his faith. We've gotten to see him mature in his prayers and we've gotten to see his heart become that of a shepherd, that of one who serves and gives his life for his children, uh, for his, the people he's um, serving, Lord. And we just thank you for that gift. Help us to be like that. Help us to love the people in our lives so much that their lives are more important than our own. Help us to elevate and lift up those people. And Lord, I have some people in this room right now that serve hundreds of students every week, and Lord, I just pray you bless them to become people of God, to become servants of the King, that your hand can be seen in the lives of those students and those people they work with, and our co-workers, uh, those that have to come into the HR office on the worst day of their professional life. Lord, I just pray you anoint and bless our interactions with these people. Help us to be people of God, servants of God, in Jesus' name. Amen.